At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Are you excited to learn a little bit more about neuroplasticity and opportunity to look at what global leaders around the world are doing and making things much better for their clients when we look at behavior, when we look at future work, when we look at level work, and so many things? Hey, it's Isabella Lundberg here at the World Messenger, and I'm inviting you for another episode of Legacy Leader Show. This episode is going to definitely be epic because today's guest is going to shed some light on not only what I just mentioned, our organizational behavior and shifts and changes that we're seeing, they're going to be shaping future work, but so much more. How do you fit in all of that mix and what can you do? We're going to hear from experts. We're going to hear from great author and someone who is going to be sharing perspective from the global perspective. Dr. Corey John Block. Welcome, Corey. How are you? Hi, really excited to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you for calling me in your evening, which is, oh, it's my evening and your morning because I'm on the opposite side of the world to you. So that was very helpful. And thank you for <laughs> joining in and making this happen because I really am eager to learn not only about Love of Work, your most recent published book, but also yeah. everything that is happening and behavioral aspects with organizations that are shaping, obviously, not only the cultures, but teams and individual contribution, because everybody is right now going through so much shift, and it's nothing better than to hear from subject matter expert in that field. Uh, you have so many things accomplished, so to depict and unpack all of that, where do we start first? How about, Corey, you uh, share, how do you landed yourself in Dubai, and how is uh, everything going on for you there? Sure, yeah, I've been in Dubai now 12 years. I was five years in Yemen before this, and eight years in Estonia, in Eastern Europe before that. Um, my career started out at the age of 23. I moved to Estonia and started five companies, so I was a serial entrepreneur in my 20s. By the age of 28, I had already exited a couple of those companies and I was consulting for the World Bank and the Council of Europe. Um, by the age of 35, I had completed uh, two masters and a PhD and I was uh, starting more companies, but then moved into Yemen. I was there for a few years, moved to Dubai, started a couple of other companies. I went bankrupt somewhere along that road as well. Also got divorced and got remarried. So I know how to fail forward too. Um, so my, you know, my track record is pretty big, but you know, for every book that I've written and published, I've started two and I haven't even finished them yet. So, you know, I'm just, um, a, a pretty high output person. And a lot of the time, the biggest question I get when people look at my LinkedIn profile is how, how did you do all of that? Cause I'll be honest with you, even me, I think I've had the privilege of living four lifetimes already over the course of my adult life. And I think I've lived and experienced much more life than, is due to anyone that anybody deserves. And I think that's just, uh, it's partly a, you know, a product of the mentors that I had when I was growing up, partly a, a product of my, my curiosity drive, and then having developed the skills that I needed in my 20s to make sure that I could keep this momentum up for 30 years. 
And I think that is amazing a reflection to look at and self-assess, right? Because a lot of times we are being already preconditioned what is possible. And I love what you just opened the door to, uh, how important it is obviously for you uh, to continue to educate yourself and dive in to yeah. do, be able to not only uh, finish your doctorate, but also be able to continue to provide a life coaching and business management mm. for others and support uh, others in that journey. Uh, but I'm also curious, obviously, with curiosity that you have in travel and exposure, how all of yeah. that contributed where you are today. If you could just say one of these main components were mm key drivers to get where I'm at today and where you're helping yeah. your clients to arrive as well. Yeah, I think number one is curiosity. Number two is discipline. I think if those two things are in order, and one of them comes naturally to me, I'm just naturally curious about everything. And so every once in a while I collect, like I started out in my twenties by just reading books. I would read a book a week, then like two books a week. And I would just devour information. That's how I started my few, my first few companies. Um, that's how I survived my bankruptcy. I just read, I just consume a tremendous amount of information. And then eventually I started going to academia. So I would publish journal articles and, and then I collected two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees. Then I did postgraduate studies um, in finance at Harvard and artificial intelligence at MIT, because I was curious about those things. And I followed my curiosity into academic studies. Then I started getting certifications because I got curious about other things. And so this last year, as you mentioned, I'm uh, now a board certified master neuroplastician with the Institute of Organizational Neuroscience. And if you're interested in that, you go to npnhub.com. They're really great. So uh, neuroplasticity has been a really big concentration of mine over the last three to five years in reading. Neuroplasticity, I think, in evolutionary psychology have been the two subjects that have really helped me the most in my craft. But since about eight years ago, I've kind of earned the right to never work again. And so now I only do what's really fun. Uh, but my wife tells me I'm not allowed to have a third doctorate degree. I'm not allowed to collect any more doctorate <laughs> degrees because she's like, she's like, listen, you can do it. You can do it for fun. Just don't put it on your LinkedIn. It's, it's starting to look like a little bit silly. Um, and, and I think she's right. But don't be impressed by that. I don't, I don't watch football. I don't collect classic cars. I read. I write journal articles. And every once in a while, I get a degree. Or more recently, actually. I write a book. So my curiosity drive has led me to write books now on the things that irritate me the most. And pretty much every book that I've written is a product of my own irritation with the world. I think the world could be a little bit better. I'm irritated by something. And then I go and look. This is the thing is I go and look for a book to help me solve this problem that I have. And if I can't find it, then I end up writing it. So I, I now write and publish a book every year. Um, a couple of years ago, it was Spartan CEO, The Six Pillars of Executive Performance. Then it was Business is Personal, A Blueprint for Unlocking Meaning at Work. And then last year, 2023, Love at Work, um, which is the final frontier of empathy and leadership. And all of this is a product of curiosity and irritation. But then in order to get it done, right, it's thousands of hours of reading and writing and, and actual work, right? And that takes discipline. Um, so having those two things, curiosity on the natural side and discipline on the skills side, I think that's probably the big secret to my success. That is brilliant. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I love what you just said, uh, because we have to constantly involve and you're a perfect example of that, how evolution of your growth, maturity, expansion, and emotional capacity uh, really brought you to so many different adventures in addition to curiosity. And yeah. uh, in terms of problem solving and solutions that we're looking, we're seeing plenty of plethora of those that have to do, obviously, how we are um, looking at the problem, how we are 
trying to find solution and how we're bringing others along. And one of the mm -hmm. biggest pain points right now we're seeing it's happening actually in working environments. So you mentioned a love of a love at work. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about that perspective, please? Yeah, absolutely. Easily, happily. Because um, the problem, Isabella, is that I, I just got really irritated when I realized that, okay, I was reading all of these books, right? Over the last few years, I'm reading books by Simon Sinek about empathy and leadership, right? And I'm reading books by Amy Edmondson about psychological safety. Uh, and I'm reading books by Stephen Covey about trust in, in the workplace. I'm reading books about shared belonging. I'm reading books about uh, respect, but but I'm not reading any books about the highest form of any of those things, mm -hmm. right? The highest form of psychological safety is love. The highest form of trust is love. The highest form of empathy in leadership is love. Love is like a shortcut to all of those benefits. And yet none of my heroes in the leadership space would even touch the subject. They won't touch the word. So I'm I'm thinking, and I so I talked to Stephen about it. I was like, you know, like, why aren't we, if you, you're talking about trust in leadership, which is great, right? But the most advanced form of trust where you don't really have to think about it. It's not an activity you do. You have to, it's not a skill. You'd have to pursue it is love. When you love someone, you just trust them. And when you think that they love you back, they they trust you, right? And so that becomes a shortcut for things like critical feedback and decision-making behavior and um, discretionary effort in organizations. And so there's, a, there's a, a critical strategic advantage there that we're not taking advantage of. And I, so I, I did, I, so I was looking for books on love and I couldn't find them. So I wrote it. And that's actually what happened is I, I really wished there was a book about the highest form of empathy and leadership, and I, and I couldn't find it. For me, again, it, it 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 comes back to evolutionary psychology, right? Like we're we're the product of a million years of successful survival and adaptation. Isabella, you exist because the last ten thousand generations of your ancestors, they made it work, right? Whatever the world threw at them, feast, flood, famine, war, disease, right? The planet's been trying to kill us for a million years, but all of your ancestors survived. They, they earned you the right to be born. And one of the most incredible, powerful tools they had was the ability to know who it was that they belonged to, who they were going to provide for and protect when they're not looking, who was going to provide for them and protect them when they're not looking. And the shorthand for that is love. Once we have that kind of trigger to know, okay, this these are the people I'm going to provide for and protect. These are the people that are going to provide for and protect me. And these are the people who, who aren't. Right? I know who I love and I know who I don't. And that's how our ancestors knew how to share value and share resources with because resources were scarce and violence was plenty. So that became a shorthand for survival. And what and, and that, that best practice for survival, that's what we kicked out of the office. That's what we decided didn't belong in the boardroom. You know, and I, it just seems so wrong to me that the that while we're talking about shared values and belonging and empathy at 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 work, we're not talking about the highest form of any of them. That just doesn't seem right. So I wanted to bring love back into the boardroom. And I know like, they're, they're, look, you can say, oh, I, I love these sales figures, or I love what you did for me there, right? Those are the kinds of things that you can say in the in the office, but nobody's saying like, I love you, Isabella. Like that, that's, that seems to cross a line. And what I'm saying is that line was manufactured artificially by bad management consultants, probably in the 1970s and 80s, following the shareholder supremacy movement, companies like EY and KPMG really needed strategies to dehumanize people. 
And I just don't, they, they, we've tried to dehumanize people to turn them into cogs and great economic machines to get the best productivity. But I don't think that's the best form of productivity because my understanding of it is that we are psychological machines, not physiological machines independently. And a, a person, an employee, whatever, they will, they will work hard for a leader that they're afraid of, but they will, they will fight for a leader that they love. And they will, they will sacrifice everything for a leader that they think loves them. And that's what I know about humans performing at their very best. And so you want the best out of your employees, you want the best out of your team, fine. Love is the shortcut to that level of discretionary effort. I am just smiling inside and I'm just super excited to hear this. And I can't agree with you uh, on every aspect you just mentioned, because I remember times when holistic, just a holistic approach, people were looking at me, what do you mean holistic? It was a forbidden word to be utilized. <laughs> and that yeah. took a while to get to the point that we can really say it. And then when you also add a component that we're spiritual beings in, you yes, know, bodies. And that also our belief systems, whatever it is that what we believe a huge component, how well we're going to do emotionally, mentally, physically, and how mm -hmm. well we're going to be equipped to handle difficult challenging situations in, in our life. And last few years tested us exponentially, didn't they? And I'm so glad you mm -hmm. addressed that. So bringing love back, because when I did assessment, I found what is the neatest, the most, where's the largest, biggest deficit? of every human being right now today, because yeah. that emotional capacity is lacking, guess what, was love. But Everybody yes. wanted to more love, wanted to feel love, want to be able to love, want to be able yep. to immerse themselves in love, yet we are so deprived for all of those reasons that you just mentioned. So if you don't mind sharing, um, so now that we're bringing love back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How are we doing that? Please. <laughs> okay, so I I wanted like I I wanted to run an experiment. So about a year ago, while I was doing the research for the book, I was like, oh, this doesn't seem right. I want to try to big bring love back, but I can't just go up to my coaching clients and say, I love you, right? That's too it's too emo. It's too sharp. People they'll react, right? They'll have like we have an allergic reaction to the best thing ever. It's silly. Um, so what I did was I decided to just sign all of my emails, love Corey. And I did it arbitrarily on a single day and I made a commitment to myself. I will never sign an email with anything other than love, Corey. That's it. Vendors, clients, my family, my neighbors, you know, the guy collecting payments from the gas company, like all of it. Love, Corey. And I just wanted to see what would happen, right? As a kind of experiment. It's been like a year and nobody seems to mind, right? Nobody's reported me to any HR departments and i work in like some really rigid companies right like i i coach uh for if you know the companies here like adnoc and and emirates or maybe some of the global companies i work with the united nations world bank um uh microsoft and, and nobody's reporting me for saying love Corey, right but what i wanted to do is just kind of insert a little bit of just a little bit of love and of course i'm not defining that right and that's the dangerous thing what do you mean well you know, are you, is, are you flirting with me? Is this romantic? And, you know, nobody's asked me that either, but, but that's, I mean, that's the obvious first question is, well, what, what kind of love are you talking about? Cause well, I let's, I mean, let's face it. I love, I love, I don't know. I love chocolate. Right. And, uh, and I love my kids. So, right. And it, I say love for both of them, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Right. So it can means anything from like a preference 
for candy to like an undying sacrificial, I'm going to take care of you with all of my resources kind of thing. But neither of the end of the child and chocolate spectrum is, is romantic. Neither of those are sexual. So why are we confusing something whose, whose weakest end and whose strongest end are not romantic with, with romance in the office? So even though like, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't think, you know, sexuality and romance has a place at work per se, I don't think it's completely outside of work either because, well, let's face it, statistically it's going up. And anytime you put a bunch of apex predators together uh, in mixed gender community and they get along really well and you have shared belonging and shared values and empathy, well, you know, a couple of them are going to fall in love here and there. That's that's the natural reality. Um, so I don't believe it's completely independent of the office, but I, that's not what I'm encouraging. What I'm encouraging is the kind of love that says, I've got your back when you're not looking. Okay. And I'm going to be honest with you when you don't want to hear it. The kind of, it's really interesting in the study that I did because the kind of critical feedback that executives and senior managers really need cannot be delivered by anyone other than someone that loves them. Okay. Right. It's in, it, you, there's, ex, there's tons of examples of this. You'll get executives who are like, really kind of reserved or, you know, or, or they make a mistake, right? And then somebody who's like their work spouse will come into the office and say, come on, Jerry, you're being, you're being a jerk. Stop that. You're making things worse for all of, all of us. I, I love you. I love you. And you know, I love you. You need to turn this around, right? And so they can give really direct, sharp kind of, you know, 360 feedback that changes direction really quickly. And you, and you react to that feedback and you trust it because you know that person loves you. And you'll only react to it and trust it if you know that person loves you. And you'll only know that person loves you if you're open to the possibility of somebody at work loving you. And the reality is that it's doubled in the last maybe two to three years, the number of people at, at work uh, in Western Europe and the US specifically that, that, that have a, what they would call a work spouse has doubled in the last like three years. And that's not, it's not mixed gender. It's not like boys and girls and girls and boys, right? It's boys, boys, girls, girls. It's, it's a work spouse. It's somebody at work. That's like your bestie that you, that you trust and you're loyal to, like you would be to your own spouse, sometimes even more, you know, cause you're spending all this time with each other. And so if you have that bestie at work, you might say, oh, that's my work spouse. Well, yeah, that's love. That's the same evolutionary psychological shortcut that kept all of your ancestors alive. It's a no brainer. And you can imagine the kind of efficiency and, and, uh, collaborative gains that are that are th that organizations benefit from when relationships like that exist because then then you're not working for the company right you're you're working with your best friend and this is just the project you're working on together you don't have to be in love with the company but if you're in love with your team like if you love the people that are at the at the table with you or in the committee with you yeah, you're going to work harder because because their their family eats from that basket of resources too and you want to take care of them as much as you want to take care of yourself. So, yeah, I just think like, I think probably I, I don't want to, I don't want to bring love into the office as though it's gone. I, I want to recognize the love that's already there and kind of and amplify it because statistically speaking, it's there. And the kind of romantic sexual overtone that we're all avoiding by using the word, you know, when I say, I love you, Isabella, you have to figure out whether or not I'm hitting on you. That whole thing, the sexual harassment theme is actually declining over time. And it's super interesting when you look at official sexual harassment complaints in the US 
uh, workplace sexual harassment. It, it's actually, it was in decline or is in uh, incline for a while. Then the Me Too movement hit. Then it started to plateau out and actually it's been in decline. And you would think that it would like go down because of COVID, but that's not true because online relationships are are like 10 times more likely to involve sexual harassment than than like face-to-face -face relationships, but it's been in decline pretty consistently. And so the reality is that as, as gender diversity is becoming much more prevalent and it's much more of a, uh, a priority for organizations, and as men and women are working together more closely in the office, we're just not bothered that much by the sexual narrative. It's just not there. And yet more and more of us are calling each other work spouse. So the reality is that love is there and it's the right kind of love. And that's what I really want to kind of, I want to try and highlight like, Hey, let's, let's shine a light on the best possible interpretation of empathy and leadership. Let's shine a light on the best possible expression of shared values and belonging. Let's start with the best possible outcome and then, and then work from there rather than, you know, inching our way up from mediocre. Like, I just, I think we could, I think we do so much better if we start with the best possible outcome and inch down a little bit if we need to. I love what you just shared again, because uh, we something has to give, right? Because we're seeing people mm -hmm. so fatigued through all these different stressors and everything that's been happening. And on top of it, yeah. when you're also not in healthy environment, when it's not good, healthy culture. And as you just said, very uh, scarce type of uh, environment in terms of love, sense of belonging and trust, which is yeah. the main for a lot of our people that are having specifically C-suite executives and executives in general, they have the biggest pressure and roles that they need to fulfill. And they're usually are in siloed environments and how yeah, they right. break from the silo environments with the rest of C-suite, let alone with their team and be approachable and accessible and able to truly connect so that I know oh is leading the ship and do I trust <laughs> do I support do I see this day to day right so it's so many things that are bringing that cause and effect dynamic but I want to ask you this Corey based on my research I found that a lot of and not to target men by all means just because psychologically both of us know how men have been raised for decades and centuries to hold their emotion back not be able to process or share openly not to be as vulnerable etc cetera, etc cetera. and in contrary women I've been told you can't anymore be as you know crying and emotional be all these stereotypes we've seen we know them we don't need to go into all of them but what I actually discovered in recent years that so many don't simply know what truly love is. How is that being exhibited? How is that being displayed? How is it being felt? And what really shocks me to find people in their late 50s, late early 60s that are accomplished so much, but they mm. went through so much heartache in personal relationship, divorces, bankruptcy, similar situations, uh, loss of connections with children, with family members, but also lost their traction where they put the most effort it's in a business. And on the yeah. end, like Isabella, I don't have nothing else to look forward to it because I feel like I did all of this wrong. Do you mind sharing a little bit of perspective from that side? And also how would you recommend or suggest specific for men that are struggling with to tap into that inner love, self-love and more and more to yeah. about that? Well, this can all be tracked. It's that's a great question, by the way. First of all, both those are great questions. So, first of all, this can all be tracked on a trajectory, right? From the cold management theories of the 70s and 80s that said humans are resources, 
right? Humans as capital. That was all invented as a as a response to Milton Friedman's shareholder supremacy movement. And you know, if we reduce humans to capital, then we can just kick a bunch of them out of the company. We don't have to think about it as you know kicking humans out of their economic tribes. We just say we're reducing the labor the labor budget by fifteen percent. You know, never mind that like sixteen percent of them are going to die as a direct result of that particular decision. But it's like it's it's a big deal. So that those cold management theories then started to like garner the attention of people like Robert K. Greenleaf and John Maxwell and Max Dupree. And in the 90s, those guys ended up writing tons of books about warm management, you know, open door policy and listening and active listening and all of that. And then in the early 2000s, that that went all the way into like emotional intelligence and emotional intelligence then became sort of like a buzz word. We need to become more you know, aware of our own emotions. And so actually, over time, men have been having conversations about emotional intelligence and bringing emotivity into management. Because actually, we're finding out that there's there's an efficiency to be gained with active listening, for example, and that's that's a big Dan Goleman thing. Is if you're you know if you're actively listening, then somebody else is going to feel accepted and nurtured by you, even if even if you don't care what you're listening about. It's just it's just time with open ears and a closed mouth. The ingredients are really simple. Um, but then we started to take that a little bit further, and I think probably about five to six years ago, uh, we started the conversation about men's mental health in organizations specifically, because there's so many of us with, with just growing complexity and growing um, overwhelm. And what, what the words that I hear the most are busy, overwhelmed, um, and there's just too many things to do. And, and my task list never gets shorter. And I can never seem to deliver on everything that I promise. And like all of that uh, is impacting on mental health in general. I mean, but men's mental health, as you said, specifically, one of the reasons why I think it's very, it's more difficult for men to solve is, is physiological. We have different brain structures than women. You have, from what I understand from a, a Harvard study I read a few years ago, you have about a million and a half more connections between the left and right hemispheres of your brain than I do. And I may have more connections within the left and right hemispheres of my brain, but that's not going to help me when I'm dealing with something emotional that I can't process emotionally. You also, as women, you produce and consume a tremendous amount more oxytocin than men do. So you have a significant social advantage when it comes to uh, feeling a sense of belonging and, and then benefiting from the sense of belonging that you have and, and allowing that social um, stability to, to stabilize you mentally, which is, you know, why women's conversations are so important, right? And men's conversations are so boring um, because we we don't really, we don't have that, we don't have the same ability to produce and consume oxytocin. So that that definitely is a huge differentiator that puts women at a significant advantage when we're moving into social structures for decision-making, right? Like committees and teams, then women are naturally better. And when we get... Um, uh, gender diversity on decision-making bodies like committees and boards of directors, we see the benefit of that. There, you know, the human side and the mental health side and the the, the impact side of decision-making becomes a lot more warm than it would be if just males were around the table. So the advice that I give to to my male coaches, first of all, is recognize that you are not a disembodied bag of competencies, right? 
you're we are biopsychosocial creatures and all of those things need to be cared for you need to care for the body you need to care for the mind and you need to care for your environment or your social structure and if you're not able to do one of those things really well it's going to limit how you can perform in the other two no matter how competent you are you will burn out and every single one of my coaching clients that has burned out and it's it i it never ceases to amaze me they'll they'll call me having like they'll have a big blowout over the weekend and just like lose a lot of money gambling or they'll cheat on their wife or they'll end up in hospital with an anxiety attack or a heart attack and they'll just completely burn out in the classic sense and then they'll call me and I'll talk to them talk to them through their experience and they'll say every single one of them I never saw it coming I I didn't I didn't know this was like it like it's a shock like it's a surprise like it didn't it's like the frog that sits in the cold water while it's slowly heating and heating and heating and then yeah. suddenly dies. Yes. Right. Well, At some point they just die. Right. And the frog doesn't see it coming. They don't. And that's because the frog isn't built with the systems that they need to detect the water temperature rising to that place of death. Because, well, let's face it, none of the ancestral frogs jumped into boiling water. That's not a natural environment. Same with us. We're in a mental environment now where the level of complexity that we're dealing with, none of our ancestors prepared us for. Mm. That level of responsibility, that level of accountability, the level of communication requirements, the level of expectations that are placed on us, men and women, none of our ancestors gave us tools to handle or even to indicate the upper limit to the amount of complexity that we can have. Right. So we just keep taking it on. We keep taking the temperature in the water. We keep raising the temperature and raising the temperature and raising the temperature. And then we are shocked when we actually die. <laughs> so that's actually the subject of my book in uh, in this year, 2025. It's called Undistractable. And it's uh, it's how to manage complexity and chaos. <laughs> wow, you already, as you said, you're working out every year from one book, and I love the, the, yeah. the topic of it. And again, tackling mm -hmm. another major issue that everybody's facing, and I cannot wait uh, to hear or actually to have it released and, and definitely read it. But uh, everything you just mentioned, obviously, mm -hmm. is a great, great insight and great reminder for specifically executive leaders and that are dealing with plethora of issues, right? And, and mm -hmm. most complexities than ever before and nobody prepare us with so many issues at the same time that That's are correct. out of our control right environmental issues global issues a political yeah. issue, social economical issues and on such a high magnitude when when it's one area happening it's creating effects and then creating ripple um either positive wave or or negative wave and people are just mm -hmm. simply I don't feel like always as equipped, right? No matter how well yeah, right. we think we are as well as uh, equipped. So in in one sentence, if you could just say one or one thing that they could just do for everybody watching to listen. And if I can just take a one action based on all mm. of amazing knowledge and education, yeah. what I can do to better myself and do things every day incrementally. Yeah. A little bit better. The most uh, the most effective practice that I've I've seen both men and women implement into their lives is gratitude. Mm. We from the from a neurochemical perspective, anger is a physiological threat response, right? So it's not really it's not a root emotion. The root emotion is either fear or pain. So when somebody's angry, 
the anger itself isn't the root of the emotion. The anger is how an animal reacts to a threat. Does it make sense? You raise your voice, you pump up your chest, you inflate your muscles so that you can either physically fight or physically flee. That's what your body's preparing you for. So you're scared or you're hurt, right? So when people get angry, this physiological threat response kicks in. And we don't know why exactly, but we do know that if that threat response starts to kick in and you have a practice of gratitude click in, like here in your prefrontal cortex where you have all the power, the, the big strong gear in your brain, you start listing and really feeling your gratitude for relationships or for your, your home, the secure place in which you live, the opportunities you've been provided, the health of your body, like you, you just start being grateful for things. That, that, uh, chemical response neurochemical response that the adrenaline the cortisol the vasopressin it just starts to dissipate a lot more quickly and you get control over your behavior a lot more quickly so one of the best strongest tools that we have is gratitude when you feel overwhelmed when you feel um like like things are going wrong like nothing's going just remember remember you are designed for consistent dissatisfaction you will never ever be satisfied because none of your let's face it none of your an ancestors ever said, oh, well, I think I'm just going to stop working now, right? Like none of our ancestors retired. <laughs> um, they all were consistently dissatisfied. They're all collecting things. Uh, so that's who we are, consistently dissatisfied. But we live in the most abundant time in all of human history. We have the most excellent technology, healthcare, transportation, um, career options, community options, community, like everything that exists today is Star Trek for our ancestors. They would not understand any of this abundance, these opportunities, and yet we're still dissatisfied. So while we're dealing with unbelievable chaos and incredible complexity, be grateful. Be grateful mm -hmm. that you were born into the most abundant time in all of human history, that your life expectancy has gone up by at least 15 years since the day that you were born. Be grateful for the opportunities that you have in front of you that none of your ancestors could have even dreamed of. Be mm -hmm. dissatisfied, right? But but be grateful. Wow, that is beautiful. And in closing, obviously, uh, you already carved this tremendous uh, legacy. You lived, you uh, led with it, and already left so much amazing footprint to people around the world. So my question is, what is left in bucket list? What would you like to hear this part, your, this chapter of your life to be remembered yeah. before? Because you already are uh, definitely um, exceeding, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 just showing, in, as you said, living four or five lives in one, what's possible yeah. and reaching further than anybody. Uh, so could you please tell us what is next? Yeah, so my next actual, like I have, I have goals. I have a vision, mission, values, and goals that I, for my own personal life that I look at every year. And I'm happy to share those with you if you want. Um, but actually my BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal, like Jim Collins would say, is that I want to improve the quality of a million lives every month. And that is not a measure of social media followers at all. I don't think that's a, that's an adequate measure, but, um, I want to wake up in the morning every day knowing that my the value that I'm adding to the world is improving the quality of a million lives that month, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm headed. I I don't quite have a handle on how on the metrics for that, how to measure it, how to make it specific. Um, but I know I'm really close with coaching. I absolutely love my coaches. My coaching clients are amazing. And one of the reasons why I get to be with the top tier leaders 
um, uh, in the MENA region is because I care deeply about them. I care deeply about them and I care deeply about the employees that they're that they're there to serve. And if I can, if the influence that I have on the CEOs and the CFOs and the CX, all the CXOs of this region allow them to make better quality decisions so that their employees can can eat better and their and their employees' children can get educated better and their their employees' parents can get cared for better. Well, yeah, that's that's a really good use of my resources. So that's my big goal. I want I want a million lives a month. Brilliant, brilliant. And I know you're going to be achieving that very shortly. <laughs> already doing that. And lastly, where Thank the you. audience can find you. Obviously, this has been so rich and amazing. And I want to make sure that audience can connect with you. Obviously, you have books published on Amazon available, uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. Where would you like audience to go to and, and get a little bit more flavor of who Corey Block is? Yeah, look, I'm I'm available on all channels. Go to my website, coreyblock.com. Very easy. Uh, just search for Corey Block on YouTube. My parents blessed me with the unique spelling of my name. So once you know how it's spelled, it's kind of easy to find. Google me, track me down. I'm not difficult to connect with. Um, my, main, my main channel on social media is LinkedIn. You can reach out to me there. Uh, but I do encourage you, like I've, I have a leadership academy online if you want to engage with something that, um, if you want to engage with my voice without paying my coaching fees, that's probably the way to go. Uh, but yeah, get the books because the, the books, I don't make money from these books, by the way. Uh, this is just a, it's, this is my community, it's my art. I communicate this to the world. Um, I make money from coaching, so I don't really need money from the books. But if you buy the book, then you'll have access to the way that I think about the world. And remember, all of my books are written to solve a problem that I had, right? And mm -hmm. and reading that, those, those things, that really is my voice because I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read every time. And I'm doing that again. I've got another one planned for 2025. There's, uh, I write books that I would, that I wish I could have read. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.